And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, on the other side of midnight. You know that very curious time between dusk and dawn where bizarre things are kind of legit to be discussed, except, as I've said now, for months and months and months, if you look at the news, look at the networks, read the New York Times, read any of the blogs, that time's now expanded. I mean, it's 24-7. We are living in very, very, very strange times. Which means this program is right in sync with, I guess, the Times. Tonight, I'm going to do something a little different. Normally, at the top of the show, I do news items and I try to give you a sprinkling of what's going on in various uh, diverse activities around the world, around the solar system. This morning, I'm going to focus on one thing only. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's banner, Sunday night, with my guest, James DeMeo, a beautiful banner highlighting his very intriguing book. We're going to talk at great length about his book and his research projects stemming from his PhD thesis, which, to my knowledge, is kind of unique. It's, it has not been done by anybody else, at least, again, not to my knowledge. We may find out that I'm wrong in a few minutes. Um, I wanted to start with the item number one in my items in Radio with Pictures, which is that the Senate confirms Brett Kavanaugh to Supreme Court rejects the Me Too movement. What we've been seeing in the whole Supreme Court discussion for the last oh, month or so, and in the last year with Me Too, and in a lot of correlated, correlate, how would I say that, correlated uh, events, is a fundamental structural problem in not just our society, but in societies around the world. I mean, certainly in, in the United States, we thought that with certain Supreme Court decisions that uh, we had solved these fundamental structural social issues and we were moving on. What was that line from um, Martin Luther King? The arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Well, every once in a while, it does a very abrupt kind of jerk. And we are set back by years, maybe a dec- decades, who knows? And the whole idea of men and women, their relationship to each other, and this growing primal scream of women, thousands and thousands of women descending on the nation's capital, demonstrating and invading the gallery of the U.S. Senate and all that. In fact, demonstrations larger than the health care debates that were held last year when when the administration tried to um, revoke... uh, Obamacare. This is telling us something. So what I did was I reached out to uh, our friend and colleague, James DeMeo, and I said, I think it's time to talk about your um, seminal work, which is this book, this thesis, this study called Sarah Asia. And uh, James is going to uh, talk about it at some length tonight because it's totally appropriate and it back may... <clears throat> underscore the word may, explain some of what is going on. Although I have a feeling there are cyclic components which are key to the physics that I've discussed many, many times. Anyway, we should have a very full and uh, provocative and hopefully satisfying discussion tonight on all of this. Let me, let me give James a formal introduction. James DeMeo, PhD, formerly studied Earth Atmospheric 
and Environmental Sciences at Florida International University and the University of Kansas, where he earned his Ph.D. in 1986. At KU, James openly undertook the first graduate-level natural scientific research specifically focused on Wilhelm Reich's controversial discoveries, subjecting those ideas to rigorous testing with positive verification of the original findings. DeMeo subsequently undertook drought-related field research in the arid American Southwest, although it's not very arid tonight, it's raining cats and hammer handles here in the land of enchantment, in Egypt, Israel, Sub-Saharan, Eritrea, and Namibia, Africa. His work on Sarah Asia questions in his mind constituted the most ambitious global cross-cultural research study to date on the subject of human behavior, family, and sexual life around the world. His published works include dozens of articles and compendiums and several books, including Sarah Asia, the Oregon Accumulator Handbook, and In Defense of Wilhelm Reich. And I could go on and on and on, but you can go to the other side of midnight to the guest page tonight and read the rest of the bio. So without further ado, James, Dr. DeMeo, welcome to the other side. Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, it's it's good to be back. Well, was my grandmother? Well, I'm, my grandmother had a saying for almost everything. I can't remember what she said about that one. So anyway, um, how do we dive into this? I presume you've been watching the news. And you've been struck like I have that we are we are so intensely polarized that it even came down to the fact that when the critical vote on Kavanaugh was going to be held on Saturday, there was some discussion that one of the senators from Maine, I forget his specific name, but he wasn't able to be in Washington because that was the day that his daughter months and months and months ago had selected to get married. And he insisted to McConnell, who's the, uh, you know, speaker of the, uh, or I'm sorry, the Senate Majority Leader, that he had to be in Montana and he couldn't be in uh, Washington. So they rearranged votes. I mean, uh, one of the senators voted present and all because of this. The point is, I was struck by the continuity that the whole issue of Kavanaugh came down to men versus women. And the reason one senator could not vote in this incredibly critical vote, perhaps the most critical and closest in 137 years was because of men and women. His daughter was getting married to a man. So this strain of, you know, gender relationships is kind of permeating our current political discussion, which to me seemed to form an appropriate backdrop to consider this epic work that you have been creating over the last couple of decades. So how do we want to dive into this? Well, uh, you know, it's basically a study uh, investigating 6,000 years of, of uh, human irrationalism and violence and the relationship between sexual life and family structure to the origins of violence question. I mean, I didn't start out um, with the idea to to do archaeological investigations, but it, it was something forced on me after I began doing all, a lot of cross-cultural work using the ethnographic data and the anthropological data to investigate some of Reich's ideas. 
And yeah, let, Reich's, let, let me let me interrupt. Uh, your your PhD, your your studies were in basically geophysics. All right. Yeah. Geography was my uh, my home department, and I was studying climatology and uh, atmospheric science, but also uh, geo- geomorphology and and some human studies. And it was really a an interest in uh, human response to deserts and desertification. I mean, that's that sounds rather timid compared to the work that I eventually did, but basically that was a starting point. And the, the ideas of Reich uh, formed a, a certain theoretical structure and approach. I mean, Reich, Reich was saying that human violence um, in the here and now is created by two major social factors. And one is uh, abusive and traumatic experiences of babies and children. And secondly, uh, the repression of sexuality between young men and young women. Um, the virginity taboo, if you will, and he was he was arguing that that these things together shaped the structure or bent the structure, depending upon how permissive or how strict and repressive a society was. Now he in, was a student of uh, he was a student of Freud, so his database was what Europe. Well, Reich Reich studied directly. Um, what he called the mass psychology of fascism in German Nazi period, uh, the, uh, this, the, the years approaching the Nazi takeover. And he pointed out how um, the women were badly treated. They had something, uh, the, the slogan of that era of Germans was Kinder, Kerke, Kirche, children, kitchen, and church. That's the role of the woman. Hmm. Um, this was a, situ- a, a time period when uh, uh, there was just very, very strict repression everywhere you looked in terms of family and social s- structure. And so he, uh, he, was, he was aware of, of how the sex repressive uh, societies would, would lead to a violent uh, characteristic in the adults. And by sex repressive, we got to be careful today because uh, what he was looking at was heterosexual repression and um, the genderism that we have today did not exist. I mean, he was arguing for a, liber- a sexual liberation of people against uh, a time when the church controlled l- the government, basically, where the baptism certificate determined who could get married and who could not. And the priests had enormous power to interfere with the, uh, the lives of ordinary people in a legal sense. So Reich was arguing for what I would call a soft sexual revolution, completely different, but it's certainly much different from what we're seeing today with, with all this genderism stuff and um, trans people going into the women's bathrooms and, and so on. It's, it's, it's turn, taken a very crazy... Hello? James. Yes, I'm here. Sorry, we got disconnected. See, I knew something was going to happen tonight. I just had this. I have no idea how that happened. <laughs> I think it was our problem with this in New Mexico. So okay. Anyway, you were in the middle of talking about uh, priests, and I presume you mean Roman Catholic priests. Well, there were yeah, the Protestants were not quite as severe, but they weren't uh, angels. Let's put it that way. Um, but the, the point I was I was getting to with Reich's work is is he he had a, a theoretical structure that could be tested, and I had access to a large database from the anthropological community 
they call it the human relations area files and this is a, a imagine if you were standing in front of a in a major library at the bookshelves on ethnography and culture and anthropology so you got thousands of books in front of you by hundreds and hundreds of authors and how do you assimilate all of that material in a systematic way to try and figure out um, how the human species behaves in so many different ways. And my approach was to use the databases that were available from those communities of ethnography. And who, they had studied all this stuff and condensed it into a computer-readable database that became available on 1,170 different cultures with 250 different variables being examined. And that data came available to me at the same time uh, in the university that the first microcomputers were coming out. And I, I got a, a small little portable computer, uh, which was about the size of a heavy sewing machine. And, uh, and I got those, those data put onto an old style floppy disk and was uh, running a computer program I wrote to, to, to make a geographical mapping of all of these data. In, for about 63 of the different variables for these over 1,000 cultures. And the patterns that came out of the map on this were astonishing. It was not, and it, it, it confirmed what Reich was saying that the cultures, there was a correlation between cultures that um, inflicted pain upon their infants deliberately. And you say to, myself, say to yourself, who, who in the world does that? Well, there are cultures that do it. We do it. We do it with male circumcision. That's one example. Mm. Now, we have, other cultures have female circumcision. Now, a lot of people object to this, but you know, the people in Europe, the men in Europe aren't circumcised for the most part. Are, are they somehow, they're not dying of penile disease. You know, they're, they're quite healthy. You know, I've always wanted to ask someone, I'm going to pick you. You're, you're it tonight. Where the hell did this come from? I know it's in Jewish tradition, but it's, there are other cultures too. What's the rationale for mutilating, physically mutilating, genital areas on well, both men I, and women? Psychologically, I think the real reason is to inflict pain and to cause a contraction of the pelvic sexual apparatus to tame down sexuality. This was, this was the argument of Mo Moses Maimonides. But your other question, where did it start from? The earliest evidence we have is from a, uh, a tomb in Saqqara in Egypt. And there's a, uh, I, I have a chapter on the origins of circumcision in my book, Saharasia, with a map showing its worldwide distribution among this ethnographic group of data that I was talking about. And these, the ethnographic data does not include modern cultures like uh, American society or Canadians. It includes uh, Native Americans, for example. And in the old world, it, you're looking at layers peeled back before too much of colonialization had taken place. So it's about as going back as far as you can in terms of a database. But uh, that, 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 um, Bas relief that's on the tomb on the on the step pyramid in Saqqara is uh, is revealing because it shows a hieroglyph of one young man who is pat who is having a couple of people cut his penis and he's very agreeable he's smiling and he's patting one of the guys on the head and then there's another guy next to him 
he's got his hands are tied and he's struggling while the guys are doing it. And the, the, the description is, oh, here's uh, person number one. And he's such a good fellow. He's, he's uh, cooperating. And the other guy, he's not, not a good fellow. He's resisting. And it's often been said that the, the Jews copied the Egyptians, as it says in the Bible, to take away the contempt of the Egyptians. Because while the Jews were slaves under the Egyptians, they were not circumcised. And then you had the Exodus, and then they they started doing it themselves, making it obligatory uh, to take away the contempt of the Egyptians because they wanted to be as good and as royal as as uh, their former mm. slave masters were. But that's one argument. Uh, that comes from a holy book, which is you don't really know how true that is, but the step pyramid at Saqqara is the earliest evidence that we have. But you know, we're, we're talking about go, trying to figure out what's going on, how how not only that, but a whole variety of different social variables, like not just circumcision, but, you know, in, in every society almost has something that they do to the children, infants, which is traumatizing, like swaddling, for example, wrapping a kid up in a tourniquet, basically, so it cannot move. And what this tends to do is it restricts the breathing of the child. The child then, after a while of complaining, it sleeps most of the time, but this is due to restricted movement and, and breathing, and it's not helpful. You see the people in the swaddling societies. Which which, which cultures do this? This is something that uh, is dominant over Central Asia. I have a map of it. There's a chapter on human swaddling and cranial deformation because the two practices. I was thinking of cranial in terrible. terms of South South America. You have uh, the cranial deformation in South America, but it also was dominant among the Huns, among many of these Central mm. Asian warrior tribes. They would, for people who don't know, they would put a tight tourniquet around the head of the young infant. And as the infant's head is growing, because the infant's head is one of the fastest growing part of the body, then the, the, the head, instead of growing in a natural round way, it gets elongated. And it, this elongated head, it sets in, into place once the kid gets older. But in that early period, uh, it causes great excruciating pain. Uh, they can start bleeding from the ears, bleeding from the nose. It can kill them. So it's, a, it, it's, a, it ha, it's lethal in some cases. And it leads to really a psychotic kind of a character structure. It really, really is a disaster for the children. Now, modern times, we've gotten rid of the cranial deformation, but the swaddling persists in the same areas of the world where the cranial deformation used to be. So I, I go into detail on that in, in, in this one chapter in, in my book, Saharasia, because the what we're seeing is with the circumcision, with the swaddling and the cranial deformation, then you look at uh, the sex repression of segregating boys from girls or putting girls into a purda kind of a seclusion like they have in the Muslim countries. Separating the boys from the girls becomes extremely important because if you want to enforce a virginity taboo, you have to keep the boys and the girls separate. It's because nature uh, in the early teen years begins to draw them together. And then you have another social variable related to that, which is polygamy. And if you have polygamy with old men who are buying wives, young wives, 
you have to get rid of the young men because they're competing for the the young girls. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not unusual for societies that have this kind of uh, coercive polygamy to throw the young men out or to organize them into military-type hierarchies or working brigades to get them away from the rest of the culture because otherwise polygamy won't work because the young girl, she gets a little older and she's saying, I don't like this 50-year-old guy when she's 15 or 20, you know? So she's going to have her eyes out for some younger guy. I think that's natural, especially if she's one of four or five wives, you see. So then you find that, that those older patriarchal system that they have, they, they have to enforce laws to prevent that, which brings about things like honor murder. If the woman tries to run away or does something, it begins to be too vocal or obstinate within the family, they can kill her. And they do. And that's what you see with the honor murdering going on today across uh, parts of the Muslim world. Uh, and then you, you see the, 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 all of these variables are reinforcing on a, on a world map, one, after, one variable after the other. This is what I discovered. There's a pattern to all of these variables geographically where they repeat. And uh, then you get into things like caste system and slavery. Also find a home within these same kind of abusive and repressive structures. And then you have military hierarchies that are very aggressive and you have the worshiping of a high god who is very violent and who has human representatives who are enforcers of that god's uh, rulemaking so i mean there's a lot of religions that do not have such a violent god and it's a more of a private thing between people and nature and and uh, their their own prayerfulness and they don't have some kind of a priest going around beating people and ordering them to be uh, burned at the stake and so on. So again, we're talking about how violence institutionalizes itself over years, starting out fundamental things, the, the infliction of great pain and trauma upon babies and children, and the separation of the boys from the girls so that there's sex sexual frustration and the destruction of the orgasm, the destruction of human sexual relations in the adult world as well. And there, my friend, you've got the origins of the big mess over 6,000 years. This is the how it got started and where we are today. And uh, it's not a good, it, it, it sounds very pessimistic. It sounds awful. It sounds like there's no hope for human civilization except maybe in, you know, some Polynesian island. Well, uh, it's on the one side, yes, but the other side of the coin is now that we know what these mechanisms are, we can do something, we can act in a constructive way. You know, provided or, you have at the, the very right. At least, we can protect our, ourselves, we can protect our societies from people who carry the worst of these elements. And well, who want you, to had, you had them. tens of thousands of women show up in Washington, and Mitch McConnell said, I guess this morning, on, I forget what the Sunday shows. You know, the mob tried to take control. His totally deprecatory approach to women in pain, talking about sexual repression and trauma and attack in an open way that has not been, you know, validated for decades, if ever. And for him as this, you know, uh, 
Senate Majority Leader to basically dismiss all that with a wave and the mob tried to take. I mean, politically, we're at such distant places in terms of these fundamental issues, and the only way they're going to be solved is politically. Well, there's truth in what you say, but then there's a counter-truth. And the counter-truth is that there was no no clear evidence for the accusations against Kavanaugh, and he deserved the right to be considered innocent until proven guilty. And we don't want to have mob rule and the lynch mob telling us how government should be handled. So, I mean, there's there's truth on the one side, there's counter-truth on the other. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer on how to resolve that. Uh, except I do believe the rule of law needs to be followed. Otherwise, we just collapse into chaos and and, uh, and anarchy. Well, this is an and area of law. This is an area of law which actually there's there's really no precedent because the the Supreme Court hearing is not a legal procedure. It's a political procedure. It's basically a job applicant saying, I want to be somebody, and everybody looks at him who has a vote and says, is this person worthy of being hired to do this job? Now, in normal corporate America, if people come in with accusations from multiple sources that they've had problems in their past, they don't get hired. You know, corporations are very, very, very aware of public opinion and public branding. In this case, it was a hardening of positions, which resulted in no investigation. I mean, they didn't, the FBI in this so-called investigation didn't even talk to her. And the, can I, can I interject here? Yeah, sure. uh, Richard, because I come from a position where I studied Wilhelm Reich's life and what happened to him was 10 times worse than what happened to Kavanaugh. And it was based upon lies, hundred percent lies by an angry mob of people who were publishing stuff and pointing fingers. They accused him of all kinds of sexual corruption. They accused him of being a quack. And he, he tried to fight back by writing letters to the editor, and of course, but there was no internet back then. And he wasn't a political figure to have a group of people rallying to his defense. And uh, he was railroaded. They burned his books, threw him in prison. Now, I experienced some of that in my university years when I confirmed that Reich had important things to say and that he wasn't crazy, that his work could be replicated uh, and was of value to be looked at. I I was put in the crosshairs by the same kind of people, but I fought back, and uh, I'm not a, a medical doctor treating people, so I was not vulnerable in the same way. But if I was you wouldn't be having this conversation with me now because I would have been in prison and dead by now. Hmm. Okay, that, hold it there. That's the other side of giving too much credence to political uh, argumentation, which erode the, the constitutional protections we have. Okay, well, hold it there. And We're at the that, bottom of the hour, and we have to take a break. My guest this morning is Dr. James DeMeo. We're discussing something really fascinating. We're going to have two and a half hours remaining to get into it. You can join the conversation. I'll give out numbers as we get to the third hour. How do harsh regimes, harsh climates, harsh environments sculpt human social interaction, particularly the sexist 
treatment of men and women, one of the other, the other of the one, etc. Um, you're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. hour of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the Kinthea, our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join 
Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back on the other side of midnight with a frog stuck in my throat. It's terrible to be on live radio and you suddenly have to clear your throat and, ah, where's the pot? Where's the pot? Anyway, uh, my guest this morning, James DeMeo, Dr. James DeMeo, and I are discussing something which is so, so important now because we're seeing in the political fractures around the country in Washington, particularly in this latest uh, hearing for the associate justice on the Supreme Court, we're seeing something which he thinks and he believes, based on literally decades of research, is coming from the environmental conditions that sculpted societies thousands of years ago in the deserts of the world. So, James, let's resume. Yeah, I think I think it is going to be more productive if I stick to uh, un, unraveling this this story about the discovery that I made because I think that it will weigh more upon these contemporary issues, not just this current one, but a lot of different things. That was my idea. And, yes. Yeah, and the the um, you know I was talking about all these different. Uh, social institutions and and uh, behaviors or abusive treatments of children and babies and and the uh, the repressive uh, qualities against young men and women uh, Romeo and Juliet if you will uh, if you remember the original Shakespeare story Romeo and Juliet commit a, a suicide at the end and they're both dead because their parents didn't want them to uh, to be together. And I was just listening to the radio today and Johnny, I think it was Johnny Mathis came on and was singing a song about, they say, we're both too young to fall in love. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. And it's a beautiful song. He sings it so well. And it's a song about young people being in love and everybody is saying, no, 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 you're too young and it's, it's, it's fake and, you know, you'll get over it and so on. And uh, it's, it, it pulls at your heartstrings, really. And most people will remember the, an early romance of some kind or another. And they call it puppy love, and it's denigrated. But one of the things that Wasn't that, that another song? Out, huh? That was another song. Or was it the same song? Puppy love, maybe, was another song. Sure. Yeah, no, it was, they, they, I, I, can, I can hear it. 1950s song. They call it puppy love, that kind of thing. Okay, well there you go, there you go, and but uh, it's got a real context in the ethnographic literature. 
that there are collections of societies that are very peaceful cultures. I'm, I'm, I want to con, uh, contrast against that depressive thing I've just talked about before. There are peaceful societies around the world. The Trobrian Islanders were one such culture. The Maurya of India Good were another. Grief, you really had to go reaching to find them, though, didn't you? <laughs> well, it, it was. Uh, I was familiar. I was studying these things over many years. The the Mozu of China, another, and and so on and so on. There's perhaps out of this one thousand cultures, over one thousand one hundred cultures that I studied, there are probably about fifty to a hundred that are genuinely peaceful societies. And let me describe them. They treat their children and infants with great love and compassion. They never hit them or beat them. And this is coming from anthropologists who lived with these cultures for years. And they will tell you, they write, they, they're, they never beat their kids. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of discipline, but it's, it's done with verbal, and uh, it's usually related to uh, getting the kids to work, work uh, help, helping in the garden or things like this, you know, like what normal parents have even today. Okay? And they, they have an institution called, it's called the Bukamatula in the Trobrian society or the Gatul in the Muria society. And this is where when the kids get old enough, of, let's say around 10, 12, 13 years old, they're, they're, uh, they're sort of breaking free of the maternal uh, bonds and the, and the family bonds. And they're, they're, they go hang out with the other kids most of the day. And they're hanging out and they're going on the beach and they're sometimes they'll do work together, but they're, they're basically running around with the other kids. Like, a, and it's, it's called the children's democracy by the anthropologists who study this kind of thing. And in this children's democracy, the children are, they learn about sexuality. They learn about, about uh, sexual intercourse and the older teens pair off and they're having their love affairs and out of those love affairs come their marriages. And the marriages are not compulsive. They're not arranged. They're purely love match marriages. And so they love match marriages wind up being very permanent. Or not, not totally permanent. They fall out of love and they, they remarry. But it's not, it's not strict in one way or the other. And in these societies, there's no pornography. There's no wife swapping. There's no... Uh, BDSM, you know, sadomasochism, and this is most controversial. There's no homosexuality. Oh, now that's intriguing. And what my work showed is that the sexual pathos you see in societies, or the or the 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 people who pull away from heterosexuality, you tend to find that most abundantly in the sex repressive societies. The societies that beat their children for having uh, masturbated, the societies that put strict taboos on uh, on virginity loss, uh, the societies that kill their children if they have sexual intercourse before marriage. Hmm. And you know there are societies like that. We know them today. They're called Muslims. It's the Islamic social structure, and they're they're they are psychologically deranged on this but it's There's not no unique, other way to say but it. it's not unique whole to societies islam. james james Pardon? listen carefully it's not just unique to islam right it is not unique to islam 
So Entire then my question societies sometimes so, can go crazy. So then my question is, what differentiates the social fabric of these idyllic island or this enclave in China? I mean, how did you wind up with an enclave in China where Chinese practice, you know, all kinds of other things, as you were saying in the first half hour? These, the, this is the people called the Mozu, and they have no relation to the Han Chinese. They're not following the Confucian traditions. They, and all of these societies that I'm naming are cultural isolates. The Trobriand Islanders is, live in a little uh, area of, of uh, the islands north of New Guinea, way away from the trade routes. The Murria of India lived in the middle of the, of the rainforest area, one of the last places to be um, infiltrated by the Hindu culture, and so on. I mean, these are what we've got is a global problem and i think it's best seen in the world behavior map that i produced uh which you have posted on your website okay so it's time it's time to go to the graphics okay go to the other side of midnight.com everybody click on our website the other side of midnight.com click on the really gorgeous uh, that's an amazing cover for that book it's so evocative james i mean your book just click on the sarah asia uh cover which is tonight's graphic, that will take you to the guest page, James Page. Scroll down in Radio with Pictures to Dr. James DeMeo's items. And item number one is a world behavior map from the book in black and white showing some really remarkable... Now, this is your, your research put in graphic form, right? That's correct. Uh, this is where 1,100... 1,170 different world cultures, each of which was analyzed for 63 different cultural variables uh, that were indicative of pain infliction, of violence and war, of sexual repression, of of, uh, women's low status, uh, of marriage rules that went against love and in, in the direction of compulsion. Um, when you when you have a society, when I my computation was such that if a society had seventy um, percent or greater of all of those variables being positive for that particular culture, uh, it was it was classified as what I called extreme patrist, which in Reichian terms is the heavily armored cultures, uh, heavily burdened with emotional armoring, mm-hmm. a lot of bottled up. Emotion, a lot of bottled up sadness, bottled up rage inside their their psychic structures. And according to the map, this is not randomly distributed around the globe, but appears That's to be correct. geographically focused in certain regions, which have similarities in terms of climate, aridity, lack of you know rain. Um, in other words, well, there, there appears to be an environmental correlation. Yeah, let's let's pause a moment before getting to the climate factor and just look at because the world behavior map was not looking at climate. It was just looking at behavior alone. And what you see is that the, the most extreme of the violent patristic cultures that that put such pain infliction on young people and such hard, hard, lethal sex taboos uh, are located in overwhelming numbers in the region stretching across North Africa, through Arabia, through the Middle East, and into Central Asia. And then secondly, 
the intermediate cultures, which have some of that, but also some of the more peaceful and gentle traditions, a mix of them, mm-hmm. those intermediate cultures are found in a, in a zone that surrounds that large territory, extreme cultures, the most extremely violent cultures. Now, that's so it's, so, it's so, so in terms of, of, of the map, it looks like it's almost onion. You've got the hardest you know, cultures in the middle surrounded by lesser evils, lesser, imp- uh, you know, impositions of strictures. Well, let's use the word suffering instead of evil. Less, lesser suffering people, suffering from their own violent social traditions. And then the, the, the ones that had the lowest of those uh, evaluation uh, characteristics with the fewest number of the more harsh, traumatic, repressive, and violent characteristics are found without a color on the map, and they appear white. And let's, let's identify them. There's little portions of Southern Africa, uh, most of Australia, and we're talking about the Australian Aborigines here. Mm-hmm. Uh, North and South America uh, are, are lacking mostly in that kind of extreme violence mostly not always now are we talking that's, are we talking european imports or are we talking native no Americans? we're talking about aboriginal people ah. the people of the pre-columbian period or or, or cultures before uh the europeans arrived and then also an, no an hang adult, on hang on this is really interesting because north and south america it looked at aboriginally they're pretty good on your scale whereas africa is kind of really bad on your scale what's well, the difference given in, given hang on hang on given yeah. that native americans and south americans all the Aboriginal peoples supposedly trekked across the land bridge from central asia into the americas you know twenty thousand years ago give or take so those cultures should have been transported and there should be an even in other words what's different what is changed but, What's different is that the original migrations into the New World took place at a time period before the violence began. How do we know that? This is some, well, because that's where we go to map number two. Ah, okay. Well, I tried to ask the leading questions. Okay. Yeah. Well, rolling down to number two, this says the Budico Latu dryness ratio. This is a special kind of a desert map that identifies the harshest of the deserts and and also the moderate deserts. And what you see is that most of the world deserts, like in the American Southwest, the, the Atacama and the, the, uh, the deserts of South America, the deserts of South uh, of Australia and even uh, Southern Africa are mostly moderate with a little coastal stretches, but they're narrow areas. The biggest chunks of the most hyper-arid desert area stretch across North Africa, Arabia, the Middle East, and into Central Asia. I see the Namib is down there. Yeah. The Namib is... uh, I've been to the Namib. I've been to... I I traveled through a number of these world deserts. And imagine yourself parachuting into any one of them with uh, uh, one canteen of water and a knife, and how... Could you survive and, and get out? And in the Namib, 
um, you could probably, if you knew where to walk, you could walk upslope and get away from the coast and find water. You could find food or animal life to survive on. Yeah, because the Same water is at the, higher elevations. It is here in the American Southwest. It rains on the on the Colorado Plateau and not down below. Yeah. And the same with same with all of those those moderate deserts I named. But if you were to parachute down in the middle of the Sahara or the middle of the Rubal Khali in, in Arabia, or some of the the Gobi and, and Taklamakan in uh, in uh, Central Asia, you're dead. Now there's there's a saying of, among the Arabs. Uh, they say if you're lost in the desert and you see uh, a sheep or a donkey, you're saved. All you got to do is follow them. Because a sheep and a donkey are never going to be more than about three hours away from a drink of water. Hmm. So you just follow them at a distance and they'll lead you to the water whether they are thinking about it or not. Uh, so, however, if you're lost in the desert and you see a camel, you just kiss your ass goodbye. You're dead because <laughs> a camel can go a couple of weeks before they take a drink of water. And hmm. you can only last about three or four days at the most. So that's less the, that's under those temperatures, I would imagine. Far less. less. The extreme hot temperatures, yes. Now, I, I, I made a whole series of maps on these desert areas about the vegetation there, the, the water availability, the soil, the types of soils, the, the subsistence lifestyles, nomadism, and so on. And they all of the most extremely difficult situations for envir- natural environment are found across that same area, North Africa, Arabia, Middle East, and Central Asia, which, it, again, in terms of environmental extremes, it's one thing repeating after the other. So what's going on that this large area matches up with the behavior of the most extremely violent, uh, aggressive type of, of behavior with trauma to infants and children and, and sex repression and so on? Why does it match up to that one major harsh hyper-arid $64 million question. Well, it has an answer. And the answer comes from paleoclimatology. Paleoclimatology is the study of ancient climates, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that if you go back in time to around 4000 B.C., that big dry desert area was not a desert. It was filled with grassland and huge lakes and every kind of big browsing animal that you today see in the, in the East African animal parks. They had crocodiles and fish and elephants and giraffe and rhino and hippopotamus. And we know this because, number one, the ancient humans who lived there made rock art paintings of them or carvings mm-hmm. in stone. And secondly, we know because the bones of these same creatures are found scattered around in the middle of the of these big deserts. And thirdly, we know because of the the geographical strata of the of the of the ancient soils show uh, the the remnants of algae and mollusks at lake levels that are up about 200 meters to 300 meters higher than the bottom of those deflated desert basins. Mm. In other words, the deflated desert basins in the middle of the Sahara and in other places across that big desert belt were once filled with gigantic lakes. 
and some of the wadis, like there's a huge wadi that goes from Morocco uh, on the Atlas Mountains heading southward and carves a, a snaky path across the whole of North Africa and dumps out as a, as a dry riverbed a tributary into the Niger River, which then dumps out through to the uh, coast at night through Nigeria. Yeah? And that was a flowing river at one time, an enormous flowing river. So the, it, the history of this place geographically was very wet. And then within about one to 200 years, it all dries up. This we know from the work of, of uh, Peter Demonical, a, 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 geomorph, a, a, a geologist who's been studying um, soil samples and ice, uh, ocean, excuse me, ocean core data right off the, the uh, west coast of Africa, showing massive transitions in the transport of Saharan dust um, or, or soil, where you see that the ocean strata suddenly, within a period of about 100 to 200 years at the most, is beginning to be filled that ocean uh, ocean sediment is being get, beginning to get mixed with Sahara. Are we are we talking to dust. the to the west of Africa where the hurricanes form and we see these on satellite images now we see these brilliant orange and reddish plumes of dust coming off the That's Sahara. That's right. That's right. So by and doing today, coring, by doing sub ocean coring on the sea bottom off the coast of Africa, the west coast, we can see in the in the column in the geological column a time when there was no lot of dust coming off Sahara and then That's a time right. when it suddenly started. That's right. And that time period is approximately 4,000, 3,500 BC. You and, know what uh, I'm going to ask next, don't you? It, it's correlated with all of these evidences for change from wet to dry across that huge, large okay. tract. Okay, here's thing. the question. Why? What changed? I mean, I was always taught that major global climate regimes are basically geologically determined. You have big mountains, you know, you get dryness in the lee of the mountains because the water all, you know, rains out on the mountains because the origin of uplift. You know, the air convex upwards and it gets colder. And for people that don't follow climatology, I'm describing how this works. So downstream, downwind, there's not going to be a lot of water to condense to produce rain. So there are going to be arid desert or, or drier conditions to the east of mountains if the winds and the weather are going from west to east. What would have caused globally a global change of this magnitude with no change of the underground on, on, on underlying geology? Well, that is a good question. And uh, the best answer I've been able to come up with is that the, the, uh, the paleoclimatologists who are arguing for long-term climate cycles are probably correct. Okay, but the cycles and, are based example, on on what? What triggers? Well, they they look at the at, at the soils, at the strata, and and the geology, and also for animal life, uh, the skeletons of animals, and so on, to try and reconstruct what existed uh, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago. And what we know is that uh, the, the African wet phase, the North African wet phase, was something that ends around 4,000 to 3,500 BC. But it starts, uh, if you go back far enough, around 10,000 BC, it, it was a desert prior to 10,000 BC. So it went from desert 
to rainy, and then now back again to a desert. So it is cyclic. It is cyclic, yes. That's the best evidence that I've seen. So then the question uh, is, why is, what determines the cycle? Is it the sun? um, This is something I think that's not so clear, but it seems to be associated with uh, Milankovitch-type cycles, uh, orientations of the Earth with respect to the, the Earth's wobble, uh, and that sort of thing. But it, it, I don't think it's quite so clearly linked in that respect. So there's a bit of mystery that's remaining. Well, then here's here's a big one you might want to think about. What about pole shift, literal physical shift of the inertial axis of the planet in space? Well, I've, I've read some stuff on that, and it's uh, I think it's something that's worthwhile to ponder, uh, but I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't speak to it with any definitive uh, conclusion. You know, it's uh, it's an interesting set of ideas. I suppose you're speaking about Hapgood's work. Well, Hapgood was talking about the the crust sliding over the mantle. I'm talking about the literal physical reorientation because of the hyperdimensional model of the spin axis of the planet obliquity in inertial space. You know, where it points toward the stars. And well, that's I think that's. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but he was saying uh, that the, the North Pole was at one time over North America. Yeah, that's the, that's the skin. And then it that's moved the, over that, parts of Northeast uh, That's Asia. the crust of the Earth sliding over the mantle. That's different than what I'm talking about, was a physical reorientation of the entire planet. Oh. Well, I don't think anybody could tell where the Earth's axis was pointed. Uh, all they could tell is that the ice buildup was great in those areas um, and you know, nobody was around to, to say in which direction the axis was pointing hmm. you know what I'm saying but you're saying then that because of this transition this climactic transition previous society do we have any data on how pre-desertification era societies treated their children well we can we can look at the rock art and we can look at the the record in the archaeology of the uh, of the settlements, and what this is what you see. This is what the pattern is. And I, I have a, a chapter, a huge set of chapters, I should say. One third of my book is an archaeological historical survey of the evidence in these dry zones of what happened starting around. 5,000, 6,000 BC, and going up to that transition. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, right James. I've, I've done it again. Your conversation is too interesting. I blew past a break. So let's take a moment here, and we shall return with James DeMeo, my guest this morning, discussing the climactic impact of Earth on the societies that live in those regions on Earth in the deserts of the world. We shall return. <laughs> 